Thanks again. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. I, I'm, I'm delighted to be in a church where there's a harmonica. That is cool. I, I get to travel around a bunch of different churches and different cultures, and the music is reflected by the culture, but I, I think this may have been the first time I had praise music with harmonica. I really loved it. Um, uh, uh, several years ago, I was in Los Angeles, and um, it, it was kind of an unfortunate thing because there's, uh, uh, my name is Randy Newman, and there's another guy named Randy Newman, and he's big in L.A. If you know his music, he has a song that they play at every Lakers game, I Love L.A., and there were a lot of people disappointed to find out that I wasn't, so, um, <clears throat> um, so but... Um, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm delighted to be with you, and, and I'm always amused that I get invited to speak about evangelism. I have written about the topic, I have, I've done a fair amount of evangelism, but I, I'm, I'm an evangelistic chicken. I'm, I'm not one of those bold evangelists who always witnesses on airplanes. In fact, on airplanes, I really love sound-canceling headphones. Um, I, I get on airplanes, and when I hear the flight attendant say, we're expecting a very full flight, I think, oh no, there are people here. Uh, so I'm, um, I'm, when I first started working with the C.S. Lewis Institute, I asked them if my business card could say evangelistic chicken. They said no. So I'm a senior teaching fellow with the C.S. Lewis Institute. I hope you're impressed. Um, I, 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 I'm a fellow struggler in the world of evangelism, and I hope that that's encouraging to you. The vast majority of Christians are not evangelists, but the people who usually speak about it are. And so they always talk about how easy it is or natural or everyday <laughs> words that do not describe my evangelism. In fact, for many years I was with Campus Crusade and we would have speakers who always got up and told how easy it was and how successful it was. They always had people always pray to receive Christ with them. I, I, I don't know where these people live, but um, certainly not in New York where I'm originally from or Washington, D.C. area where I'm living now. And so I... Um, I remember one guy uh, speaking to our whole staff, and he got this pained look on his face, and he said, I cannot sleep at night unless I've witnessed that day. And I thought, oh, I'm sleeping just fine, buddy. You, you, they, they, they have medication for that. You might want to, you know, I don't know. So, um, and so I'm, I, I'm, I'm regularly confronted with the idea that evangelism is not what most Christians feel comfortable in doing, but, but I've done enough research on it to find that um, God uses the uncomfortable ones. God uses the timid and shy ones. God uses the non-evangelists in profound ways to spread this good news. So, um, I was reminded about this once um, not too long ago in the Washington, D.C. area. I, we have a subway system there, and I was riding it. We call it the Metro. And it was during rush hour. The car was pretty packed that I was in. We had just left a, a station where the doors had closed, and someone who had just gotten on the train right before that, as the train took off, he announced in a very loud voice, May I have your attention, please? And, and, and he got our attention because you don't do that on the subway. You don't make announcements. You do, actually, you don't even talk. I mean, there's, it's, there's not an official rule, thou shalt not talk. But in Washington, people don't. They, they read their Washington Post or their big important government document, and um, they, they, they don't do that. So, um, so he got our attention. And by the way, just to, to, this was at a time when in the stations, in the subway stations, they always had a... Um, a sign about what level of security things were at. 
Um, the worst is red, and the best is green, but then there's yellow and various different shades of orange in between, and uh, because of all the terrorist activities and how that has affected Washington. And so they had just recently increased the status up to orange, a, a, a bright orange. Um, when it gets to red, what it means is um, uh, uh, move to Texas. Um, but... Um, <laughs> So everybody's on edge in this train car with this guy announcing, may I have your attention, please? And just to kind of boost it up a little further, I was sitting very close to where that man was standing on the aisle, uh, sitting on the aisle, and right across the aisle was a woman who started screaming, no, no. And, and everybody's looking at him, looking, oh, and we're thinking we're going to be on the 11 o'clock news. And he reaches in his pocket, and he pulls out a book and he starts to sing blessed assurance Jesus is mine and everybody exhales and rolls their eyes and goes back to their Washington Post everybody except the woman next to me who continued to scream shut up stop it's the oddest duet I've ever heard <laughs> did you know that hymn has four verses uh, <clears throat> Now, why do I tell this story? Because I think a lot of Christians think that that's what is evangelism, getting on subway cars and singing or preaching or standing on street corners with a microphone and, and, and preaching. And most Christians, I think, would say, if that's evangelism, then I'm never doing it. Now, um, I, I, I always get a little nervous at this point. Of, uh, so maybe some of you do that kind of evangelism. May the Lord bless you. You probably wouldn't be here right now. You'd probably be out on the street corner. But so, uh, but, but so if that is your style and gifting, may the Lord bless you, the vast majority of us, my guess, would say no. Is there some other kind of evangelism? And by the way, I, I think we're living in a world where more and more people would be like this woman who would tell us to shut up. How do non-evangelists proclaim the, world, the, the message in a world that may not want to hear it? That's what I want to talk about. And the, the, the short answer is with tensions, with difficulties. Um, but let me remind you again that God uses us in, in profound and powerful ways. So I want to look at a passage in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, and try to ask how, how do we non-evangelists proclaim this good news in our world today. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Let me just say before I read the text, um, you, it's important to see this passage in light of the whole uh, book of Colossians. I think a deep reflection and appreciation for how wonderful the good news is, is the best preparation for proclaiming the good news. Uh, the more you marvel and wonder how amazing it is that God took on flesh and came and dwelt amongst us and died a sacrificial death so that we could have atonement for our sins, the more amazed you are at that, the more when we talk to people it will sound like good news. So, Colossians is one of the most beautiful uh, books about the deity of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. He's not just a teacher. He is indeed a teacher, the best teacher who ever lived. But he's not just a teacher, which is what I was told growing up. I grew up in a Jewish home. We didn't hear about Jesus being the Messiah. We were told that he was just a good teacher. When I first read the New Testament, I found, oh, no, wait a minute. No, no, no. He's not just a teacher. He's either God himself or we should just reject him as a lunatic. And so I uh, love the book of Colossians that says such marvelous things about his deity in chapter 1. Things like all things were made by him and for him. 
It's easy to kind of run past that, those two little words, for him. But it's an amazing statement of his deity. Everything that has ever existed and does exist was created by Jesus for the purpose of ultimately bringing glory to him. All things were made by him and for him. That's not just a good teacher. And so chapter 1 is loaded with these truths about who Jesus is. Chapter 2 then talks about who we are in Christ, if in fact we are. And I think chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 may be the thesis statement of this whole book. It says, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So chapter 2 talks about the wonders and the blessings of being in Christ. We have all of our sins forgiven. And then, as so very often is the case with Paul and his books, it pivots to more practical matters. Here's what difference it makes in your life. And so chapter 3, verse 1 says, since then, we've been raised with Christ. And then there's all these implications. It changes the way we think about ourselves, how we think about um, our sin. It changes the way we think about our identity and what are the most the important focal points of our lives. And then it starts making a difference in the relationships around us, in people in the body of Christ, in our families, in our workplace. And then as we get to chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, we see that it even makes a difference in the way we interact with outsiders. So, here is God's word beginning in Colossians 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Four tensions or difficulties that we live with in wanting to proclaim this good news. And the first one is the reality, the duality of prayer and proclamation. Prayer and proclamation. Paul tells us to devote ourselves to prayer and then almost without even pausing, he, uh, he says, pray that God may open up a door for our message. So evangelism occurs at this intersection of both the supernatural and the natural the supernatural work of God revealing himself to people, opening up blind eyes, softening hardened hearts. Uh, Ephesians 2 says that we were all dead in our transgressions and sins and God made us alive. And so we need the supernatural life-giving, eternal life-giving power of God's regeneration. And yet, evangelism also occurs where people have ordinary conversations. They ask questions, they dialogue, they offer uh, reasons why this, is, this makes sense. They tell about their experience. And so it makes sense that we would want to devote ourselves to prayer because it's, it's, we talk to God about people, then we talk to people about God. We ask God to do what only he can do of opening up people's eyes, and then we ask him for wisdom to give us the words to say, the ways to say it. We pray. And we need to be diligent at it. Do you notice he says to devote yourselves to prayer? Or another translation has it, um, remain steadfast in prayer. What does that tell you? makes me think uh, it must be easy to quit. If there's one thing I've learned about prayer, it's, it's easy to lose heart. 
And in fact, you may recall Jesus told several parables of people who kept on knocking and kept coming and kept imploring because it's easy to lose heart. There's something about being physical beings living in a physical world, praying to an invisible God about things that we can't really measure. And it's easy to think, ah, I don't know if this is making any difference. I got a lot of other things to do. I have a big long to-do list. I don't have time for this. And so we, we need a constant reminder to devote ourselves, to remain steadfast in prayer. And that's, that may be especially so when we're praying for non-believers. Because if ever there's something that would cause you to lose heart, as if you're praying for someone for year after year, decade after decade, and you go, ah, I just don't see anything happening. In fact, I see things happening in the opposite direction. Now, Paul does give us a couple of encouragements that I think are worth um, thinking about. He tells us to be watchful and thankful. Those are two things that can be very helpful in our remaining steadfast in prayer. Um, being watchful in prayer. I think, it, I think it's both during prayer and then after prayer. While we're in prayer, we're, we're alert, we're watchful. We're not just going through a rote of listening uh, requests and we're not just repeating words, but we're, but we're watchful to see what God is leading us to or reminding us of, of a verse in Scripture or, or helping us understand the situation better. But then after we pray, we start watching to see how God might possibly be answering those prayers. By the way, um, I, I'm reluctant to pray for opportunities to witness because I'm pretty sure God will answer. <laughs> and then I'll have to say something. So I, so I, I spent a lot of time praying for non-believers and praying for myself in the midst of it. Lord, would you help me to be bolder than I naturally am? Lord, would you help me to be set free from my idolatry of ease? I want things to be easy. I want my life to be hassle-free. I, I want to be comfortable. I worship comfort. And so my prayers very often are including in the confession of the sin that I worship my comfort more than God's glory. And I am seeing God set me free from that. But it's, it's, it requires confession and it requires me to think of, oh, that's why Jesus died on the cross. For that specific idolatry and all my other idolatries. He also tells us to be thankful. So it's really good to have some sort of way of a record or a journal or something where you keep track of prayers so that you can write down when he answers because if you don't keep a record well uh, for most of us we forget that we even prayed the prayers and then we think oh God never answers my prayers but if you have a written record of all the times when God has answered it motivates you to keep praying for the ones that don't have the answer next to it yet and it really helps to be part of a body of Christ and part of a community group where you pray for each other and people say, hey, um, how is that going about the thing that we prayed last week? Um, I have good friends who ask me about my prayer requests and it's amazing how often I think, oh, I, I, I totally even forgot that I requested that. But yes, look at what God has done. So there's the first uh, tension, prayer and proclamation. There's a whole lot in this passage about proclamation. I hope you saw it. He asks for God to open up a door for our message. That sounds like words. He says that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Um, pray that I may proclaim it clearly. So there must be some words that we would use that would not be clear. He talks about conversation. So there's a whole lot in here about words and also prayer. The second tension then uh, come, goes along with that, words and deeds. 
All those things I just said. There's a lot about words in this passage. But he also says to be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. So it's words and deeds. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if it's, if it's just words and we're not living out the gospel message, people will dismiss our words. We're loaded with words in our world today. We get them buzzing in on our phone all the time. We're drowning in words. And so if it's just words, but it's not backed up with a Christ-like lifestyle and Christ-like love, then people will reject our words. But if it's all deeds without words, they won't connect our deeds to the specific message of the gospel. Uh, sometimes people debate which one's more important, the words or the deeds. I think that's a silly debate. It's like debating which wing of the airplane is more important. I'm, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow afternoon, Lord willing, and I want both of those wings to be perfect, <laughs> pristine. Um, uh, oh, sorry. See, this is, this, this is really sad what happens in this head here. So, so imagine the pilot coming on and saying, we're very excited about our left wing today, folks. The right one, yeah, not so much. Oh, okay, sorry. That, uh, they need to edit that out of the recording. Sorry. So um, words or deeds. You, you may have seen there are these T-shirts sometimes that say, um, uh, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Have you seen these? I hope it's not one of your favorite t-shirts. I'm not a fan. It's always necessary to use words. Some people say that it's a quote of Francis of Assisi, but um, I, I've done research, and I'm pretty sure Francis never said it. That's what a senior teaching fellow does. He does research to find out what Francis really said. There's a prayer request wrapped up in that. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so um, um, uh, pr- uh, we're, we're pretty sure Francis didn't say that. He said, let your uh, actions back up your words. Sure, amen. Um, we, we know that Francis was this very bold evangelist. He was one of those guys out on the street corner. In fact, um, we, have, we have written documents with, with complaints about how loud he was. So if Francis somehow could be here and we said, hey, we really like that T-shirt, when necessary, use words, I think he would start laughing. It's always necessary to use words. Sooner or later, the words need to be attached to your good deeds because they won't connect it. Here, I want to push this. Imagine you have a brand new neighbor who moves into the house next door and you want to welcome them to the neighborhood so you bake a plate of chocolate chip cookies, bring it over there, they say thank you, it's very nice. Here's what will not happen. After you walk out the door and they close the door, they will not say, I know why they brought us those chocolate chip cookies. They must believe in a holy, righteous God who is also a loving and gracious Savior. And yet, they've been created in God's image to know him, and yet their own sin, their rebellion has made a separation between them and their God. It's not as if God's arm is so short that he cannot save. Their sins have made a separation, but God, in his grace and his mercy, sent his son a propitiation. They won't say that. I said this somewhere, someone, someone raised their hand and they said, so should we put tracts in between the cookies? <laughs> Perhaps. Let's keep brainstorming. Um, uh, it's words and deeds. And sooner or later, we need to attach uh, the kindness of something that we may have done to the supreme kindness of God sending his son to rebellious, sinful people. Third tension, grace and salt. Uh, So you see it there in verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. 
so that you may know how to answer everyone. The implication is it's going to go in a lot of different ways with different people. People will latch onto the gospel in a number of different places. But our conversation, our interaction with people, our speech and talking to people should be gracious and also have an element of salt. A gracious speech is kind, it's nice. It resists the temptation to be mean and sarcastic. That's getting to be harder and harder, isn't it, in our world? The more we hear on either side of the political debate, um, the more intolerant it sounds of any other viewpoint. And not just intolerant, but sarcastic and mean-spirited. And so there's a tremendous challenge for us, recipients of the greatest kindness and grace ever, to have our speech, our tone of voice, even our facial expression to be kind and gentle and gracious. For some of us, it's like learning a new language. But it also needs to have salt. And there's a great deal of discussion about what Paul had in mind here. Um, Salt obviously makes people thirsty. They want to hear more. You want to say something in an intriguing way so that people want to know what 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 you're talking about. Uh, Some commentaries believe that the book of Proverbs was very often referred to in rabbinic writings as a kind of salt. Um, The Proverbs being short, pithy little statements would would just kind of prompt all sorts of other thoughts and ideas. And so um, maybe that's an aspect of it. We need to find ways to talk about our faith so that people don't just um, write us off, but they want to hear more. And by the way, I think that takes a great deal of um, brainstorming, coming up with different ideas about how to handle it. Very few of us are brilliant on the spot. And so we need to prepare. What would I say in that situation? What, how, what are, what, what's a half a dozen or ten different ways I could respond to that question? Um, if you try to figure out just the right thing to say, you probably won't come up with anything. So I really encourage you, even in, in perhaps in small groups or something, um, what would, okay, someone comes in and, hey, listen, my coworker said this, I didn't know what to say, I just froze. What could I have said? And let the group help you brainstorm a bunch of things. By the way, if you do freeze, it's really okay to come back to someone later and say, hey, you know, the other day when you said that you asked me that question, I, I didn't know what to say, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I've been thinking about it. Would you be up for talking about that? I, I think I have a couple of ideas. That's really okay. Grace and salt. Um, I remember hearing Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, talk about how he, when they first moved to New York City, they tried to, uh, uh, they were telling all sorts of people they were going to start a church. And he said that one of the most common questions he got was, um, okay, so what kind of church are you going to be? We've got all sorts of different churches here in New York City. Uh, Are you going to be one of those churches that talks about fire in hell, hellfire? Are you one of the hellfire churches? And he thought about, well, how's he going to respond to that? Because... Uh, Keller does believe in hell and that the, the, the verses in the Bible are there for a reason and that Jesus was the one who described it as uh, fire. And so he, he wanted to think of, how, what could I say that would be both gracious and salt? And uh, he said what he, what he came up with is he, he told people when they asked him about those verses in the Bible about hell and fire, he said, well, I think the fire could maybe be interpreted as a kind of metaphor, And people would go, oh, good, because you're not one of those crazy fundamentalists. And then he would say, and if it is a metaphor, it's a metaphor for something far worse than fire. (laughs) 
And, and then he would have a great conversation about why Jesus used those words. Um, so we, we need to think of how can we express ourselves with grace and salt. Um, here's another illustration. I've, I've gotten to the point in my life now where um, uh, I have an increasing number of witnessing opportunities to people in the medical professions. <laughs> oh, good. I, I was hoping you'd, yeah, I see a lot of doctors. And uh, years ago, I had this problem with my spine, and it was really v- pretty serious and very painful. Um, I eventually needed surgery, which the Lord used in wonderful ways, thanks be to God. Um, but before the surgery, they, they wanted to try to avoid that, and so they, they, uh, they gave me a series of injections in my spine, three shots, two weeks apart. Take one, two weeks later, another one, two weeks later, and, and it's supposed to clear up everything. It did for a month, and then it came back. So, so you get to see the same doctor and the same nurse three times, and they, they stick a needle in your spine. This is horrible. I, I you know... Um, it's funny, when I, when I talk to college audiences, they're all grimacing, and, you know, mixed age groups, people going, oh, yeah, I, have, I, yeah, I know that, yeah, right, okay, so anyway, so, um, so this doctor, you know, they, 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 they give you a pillow to hunch over, and, and, and then the doctors over here, who knows what equipment is, I, did, I didn't look, and the nurse is over here with her hand on your shoulder, you'll be okay, to which I respond, how do you know, and... Um, <laughs> And so they like, they like to start up a conversation with you right as they're about to do something painful. Do you know this? They call it uh, speech anesthesia. It doesn't work. And so, uh, so Mr. Newman, what kind of work do you do? Oh, at, at the time, I worked for a crusade. How's that for a conversation starter? <laughs> campus crusade for Christ, campus ministry. I said, well, I, 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 campus ministry. He goes, oh, that's fascinating. I thought, no, it isn't. Uh, not right now, it isn't. And um, so he, he says, and, and so they ask this question the first time, and then two weeks later, they follow. And by the third time, they think that you're ready for chit-chat. And that you're not nervous anymore. And that's not true. And uh, so, Mr. Newman, you said you're in campus ministry, you know, religion, Christian religion, you know. And then he starts telling me this story about how when he was in high school, this friend invited, me to, invited him to his church. And all they talked about was hell. If you danced, you were going to go to hell. If you drank, you were going to go to hell. If you smoked, you were going to go to hell. And then the nurse chimes in and says, oh, yeah, I went to one of those churches, too. I think it's ridiculous. And so the doctor says, well, Mr. Newman, what do you think about that? I'll tell you exactly what I thought. I thought, not now. This isn't the time for this particular conversation. I don't really want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk to Jesus. Jesus, keep me alive. And, and so I said something like, um, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to talk about this, which was a lie, um, uh, but I'm just a little preoccupied right now. He, oh, yes, yes, like I'm reminding him what he's supposed to be paying attention to. And he said, oh, well, we could talk about this when we're done. And, and so then I started praying, Lord, what in the world do I say? What, what am I going to say to these people? They, they think my religion is just a bunch of stupid rules. And, and by the way, I, I think that's what a whole lot of people think is the Christian faith. Keep this rule, keep this rule, do this. What am I going to say? Well, how, and I mean, they've both heard a whole lot of this stuff already. What, what can I say so that they'll want to hear more? So afterwards, um, uh, they, they have to stick around in the room for 10 minutes to make sure you don't die. And... Uh, and, and then they brought up the topic again, which was kind of a surprise to me. But, you know, so Mr. what do you think about all those rules? So again, I had been praying and asking and wondering, what can I say? And so I came up with this. I said, well, you know, 
I, I think we like rules because if we keep them, we feel really good about ourselves. And if, and if we know people who don't keep them, then we can feel really bad about them, which makes us feel good about ourselves in a sick way. I said, but you know, the, the stuff I need forgiveness for is a whole lot worse than things on those lists. The, the stuff I need forgiveness for are things like anger and, and bitterness and hatred, and their eyes are getting bigger and bigger, and I thought, I'm just getting started. <laughs> are you kidding? These are only the things I'm willing to admit. Um, but, it, but isn't that true? Isn't, it, when we realize not just our actions, but, but our, our thoughts behind the actions, our idolatry behind the, the, the thoughts, our sin, it's so horrible, it needs a cross. Our, our sin is so bad that nothing short of the death of the Son of God could atone for stuff that bad. And so I, I said to him, I said, you know, that, that's what I love about Christianity is I, I have forgiveness for that kind of stuff. And I, I don't totally know what they were thinking, but I could tell this was different than what they were expecting. And I've been praying and hoping that it was both grace and salt to them. How, how, can, you, how can you get forgiveness of that, even if you don't keep all the rules? So we need to think about um, prayer and proclamation, words and deeds, grace and salt. There's one more tension, one more reality we need to deal with. It's the reality of reception and rejection. Some people receive this good news. Some people tell us to shut up. Um, we wouldn't even have a book to the Colossians if some people in that city didn't respond. And in fact, they did. And in fact, Paul reminds them of that way back in chapter 1. He says, all over the world, this gospel is producing fruit. So people are responding all over the place. And he says, and you've also understood this and responded. He said, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. And, and so there was reception in this city, but there was also rejection because in the passage we looked at, Paul says that he's in chains. He's in prison Everywhere Paul went, some people responded and some people rejected him. And in many places, he, end up, he ended up in prison. And in fact, we know that eventually he was killed in prison for preaching the gospel. Everywhere the gospel has gone in our whole world, some people respond. Churches are started in the most improbable of places. Some people reject and try to squelch it. Everywhere Jesus went... People responded, and they said, he's the Messiah. He's, we'll drop our fishing nets. We'll follow him anywhere. Other people said, he's, he's demon-possessed. Let's kill him. That's the nature of the gospel. And you just need to prepare yourself for the fact that you could say the same words, quote the same Bible verse, use the same booklet, the same diagram or whatever, and some people will say, hmm, i got to think about that. And other people will say, please stop. Um. Some people reject and reject and reject, and then for, for who knows what reasons, at some point, people respond. Um, I do a whole lot of uh, interviewing of people, researching about how people become Christians. Um, I, I talk to people who have witnessed, to family members. I hear stories. And uh, many of them are, are very troubling and disturbing, and they haven't gotten finished yet, and some are wonderful and delightful. Here's one of my favorites. 
Um, I told, uh, I was working on a book on witnessing to family members, and this woman said, oh, I got to tell you about witnessing to my dad. She became a Christian when she was in high school. She was only 15 or 16 years of age. She came from a family that never went to church. She came home, told her parents about this great, wonderful thing that happened, and they didn't, they were not interested. And for years and years and years, decades, she tried talking to her parents, especially her father. When her father was in his 80s, he was kind of a recluse. He was living in a retirement community, but he never went out and didn't socialize with people. He was, he was pretty depressed. Um, and some Christians moved into the community and started inviting him to church. And no, no, I don't do that. I, I, you know, my daughter, she's religious, but I, I don't do that. And uh, so, but they kept inviting him, and finally, um, they invited him on Easter, and he figured, well, you know, if you're going to go, that's probably the you know, time to do it. So he, he goes to church on Easter, he hears about a resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, and that, it, that if we place our trust in him, we can also uh, rise, and we can also have eternal life. And so this guy became a Christian. He walked down the aisle of a church, he knelt, he became a Christian. That afternoon, he called his daughter. You know what he said? He said, you never told me he rose from the dead. <laughs> she told me, oh, yes, I had. I had told him dozens of times. I'd sent him books about it. I had sent him all sorts of things, and he just wasn't ready. But after decades of no, 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 it became, oh, well, maybe I need to think about this. So we need to devote ourselves to prayer and not give up and devote ourselves to proclaiming and not give up. For the people who respond, it's the most wonderful news in the world, isn't it? Might even make them want to sing. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, thank you for the people that you place around us who don't know you. It's no accident or coincidence that they would end up next door or down the street or... Uh, at the desk next to ours or reconnecting with us after decades by Facebook or whatever, um, would you work in their hearts to make your gospel irresistible? Will you work in our hearts to give us boldness and compassion? Would you give us wisdom about what to say and how to say it so that more and more people will join you in praise and adoration of Jesus, our Savior? We pray in his name. Amen.